When the path you're on is stable and holds the promise of conventional success, veering off might be considered foolish or irrational. But what if exploring a fork in the road could lead you to something more fulfilling, more empowering, and more impactful? Would you follow the road less traveled? For Uzo and Jaku, the answer was easy. In the middle of college, after studying a STEM field for two years, she changed her major to studio art and is now bridging her Nigerian heritage, American upbringing, and experience as a woman to create art that centers blackness and womanhood in the male-dominated and often whitewashed world of art. Time and again, this world has tried to bury us, forgetting that we are seeds of strength. Like ivy, we rise high and grow stronger when they try to cut us down. So stack the odds against us and watch as we make a way out of none. These are our stories. This is Ivy Untold. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ivy Untold. I'm your host, Kim, and today I'm really excited to have with me Uzo Njaku, who is an artist, a self-published author, and also a recent college grad. So Uzo, welcome. I'm really happy to have you on today. Thank you for having me. Um, so yes, so the Uzo of today, like I said, artist, author, recent college grad, like you're doing all this badass stuff, but I'm really interested in learning about who you how you got to be where you are today. So tell us a little bit about young Uzo and your life growing up. I would have to say I grew up with a pretty normal life. I moved to America when I was seven years old and, you know, kind of living between my Nigerian upbringing and living in an American culture. So that was that to first start off. Um, I would say growing up, I was a little bit more on the academic side for STEM. So I did pretty good on my math classes, and that's why I came to college to actually study math. I might have dabbled a little bit in painting, but it was actually more on the fashion side, okay. like just drawing outfits and coloring brats. But it was never really anything like hardcore painting until I got into my second year of college and started decorating and painting to just decorate my house. Okay, so that's what, yeah, so that's really good to know because I was going to ask, like, were you making, like, macaroni Mona Lisa's when you were, like, 10 years old or this is, like, a more recent sort of discovery for you? I would say more recent. Okay, and what kind of art do you do? I would say, so there's two kinds of um, art that you kind of learn more about. You hear hear more about, like, high-end art, like Mm -hmm. the Candy Wileys, and then you hear more about, like, um, kitsch art, which is art that's, a lot more accessible to the masses, um, a lot more graphic illustrations and things like that. And so I would say I'm kind of balancing between both. Mm-hmm. Um, kitsch art more because it's how you make money faster. Mm. It's a faster way of doing it. But um, I feel like I can express a lot of more ideas and my thoughts through the high-end art, which takes a lot longer to paint and things like that. Okay. And I mean, you're only 23, but you've already had a lot of success already. In December 2018, your work was featured in a three-week exhibition at New City Arts, which is a collaborative nonprofit um, that fosters engagement with arts in Charlottesville, where you went to school. And then just a few days ago, you had a show at the New York Academy of Art. What's it like to see these spaces dedicated to things that you have created? 
You're very involved. Mm-hmm. You know, they're on top of things. You can tell this is a very established organization. They want to make sure that the space that they create is exactly how you envision it to be, you know, and it also meets the needs of the organization as well. So, um, it's just very nice that, um, and I like that they don't charge people to come at the door because mm. I don't believe in charging to see art. And so, usually if I see a gallery that wants to collaborate with me, that's a huge part of it. Like, is it easily accessible to the public? I think that's so critical too because I think, you know, like you said, with like high-end art versus kitsch art, and I'm, I'm obviously I'm not well-versed in these things, but, you know, when you think of art, when you think of the MoMAs and these all of these galleries that are very much... I feel like what traditional dominant culture considers to be like legitimate art and the fact that those things do feel inaccessible, it feels stuffy, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so I think it's for you, why is it important to make sure that your work is open to everybody? Because I went to school at UVA Charlottesville and that's a little bit more on the countryside, you know, mm-hmm. Charlottesville actually is a very um, art dominated community, but when you start looking at the outskirts, Danville, other places, mm-hmm. There's actually a lot more focus on more inner city kids, so they have actually more access to art versus a lot of people in the country. America is a big, it's, it's a big place. Yes, there are a is. lot of kids that don't have the same access that other people have, and so one step I believe is just making things free. That's awesome. And how do you when it like when you somebody's ready for you to do a show with them? Like, what's that process like? Do you is it partially you trying to reach out and pitch your work? Do they come to you? So far, it's been them coming to me. Mm-hmm. But um, as it goes on, it's going to be, it's kind of harder for me to keep reaching out myself. So mm-hmm. as I get more into this, I'm going to have to get a representative to mm-hmm. represent me. And so it's a lot of reaching out. You know, there's um, the BMA, Baltimore Museum of Art, mm-hmm. you're just coming out next year, you're going to get only female art for next year. So that's wow. something that you have to go and apply to. Got it. You know, in that sense. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And how do you, when you do have shows, how do you prepare? Like, are you starting creating from scratch or do you have something that they liked and then you, you base your show on, on that sort of theme? Yeah, you don't want to create works for a show. Mm. You're going to burn yourself out. Okay. The basis, I mean, you shouldn't create something for an event. You should create it based off your thoughts, your ideas, and go off that. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of curating off what you already have and picking what pieces you feel goes into the show, okay. you know, and stuff like that. So you already have everything on um, on file. Um, one thing that goes into it is making sure that your pieces are um, professionally documented, either through photo or scanning it into a computer. So that way, when you're promoting the work, people can see it in its best light. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is so cool. Like, like all of this stuff is so, like so different. I don't really know any artists, and so it's just really interesting just to even learn about the process. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, a lot of artists I find they just they usually focus on just creating art, but I believe in also understanding what goes behind the whole arts administration and the whole business aspect of it, mm-hmm. so that you're looking out for your best interest. Do you ever think that one day, like, would you be interested in opening your own gallery or that's not the sort of direction you're going? It is. It's more, not a gallery. I was thinking of helping facilitate a museum in, back home in Nigeria, oh. you know, down the line, um, because tourism is a huge part of a country and it is how we get more um, money and resources going through. Sure. 
So in addition to creating art, you're also a self-published author. And um, your self-illustrated coloring book, The Blue Stocking Society, has already sold how many copies? I think we're almost at 4,000 now. And how long has it been out? It's been a year now. That's amazing. So I want to talk a little bit about... One, what the process was like. Like, how did you decide that that was something you wanted to do? And then how did you go about that whole publishing process? So I've always danced around the idea of I wanted to put some kind of work out there that people could get, you know, kind of. And I thought coloring books would be nice because Mm -hmm. you can reach a greater range of people that way. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do one based on women because that's what I usually focus on. And I had to stop first and look into kind of how it's done because I knew I didn't want to go to a publisher for my first book. Mm -hmm. I felt that it makes more sense self-publishing your own book. And then if it does well, usually publishers will reach out to you because I have had publishers Mm -hmm. reached out to me after Mm -hmm. because of this book. And so um, the first step was kind of understanding how it went, um, knowing that everything has to go into a PDF. At first, I was looking at Amazon because Amazon has a create space, which you can just upload um, files and everything, create a book, it's right there. Wow. But I kind of wanted the quality to be a little bit better because it's yeah. not as, more like, you know like the kind of coloring pages they would give out at restaurants for little kids? Yes. It was more of that quality. Okay, like yeah. super thin. Very like, thin, yeah. flimsy, and I realized that I wanted a better quality, even mm-hmm. if it meant um, paying a little bit more for it. And so I started um, taking it down. The first step, purchased an ISBN, uh, barcode, um, putting the images together, making sure that my resolution DPI is correct, mm-hmm. um, all of that. At first, I was trying to go through local in Charlottesville, but the thing about local is it gets it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Like you're looking around, yeah. very expensive. And so then I said, okay, let me go to China. But the thing about China is that they ship two ways, either by freight or by um, air. So fright takes like forty to seventy days to ship, Ooh. and that's a long time that's because a long time, usually yeah. when I get excited, I want to put it out. Yeah, and so I stepped back a bit and I realized there were actually closer places in America that had the same pricing, and so that's how I found publishers. But the biggest thing was when I put this book out, I actually did not have money to print books, so I was trying to figure out how am I gonna get this money. Yeah. So I decided to put it on pre-order. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it hit me to pre-order it. And so within the first um, first like few weeks, we had like over a thousand orders. Whoa. And so that was enough to pay for everything. Okay. So it essentially paid itself off. How did you, were you doing like some super heavy marketing? Like how did that many people get wind of this? You know, you're just kind of like a young college student. Like how did folks know that this was a thing? Mostly word of mouth. Okay. Word of mouth is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, I just have an Instagram and a Facebook, but then I eventually got a Twitter. So mm-hmm. Twitter is kind of like using all three yeah. huge platforms, but more of the orders came from organizations because they have a lot of, you know, yeah. kids, people, that makes a lot of sense. Um, hospitals, if they want to get it for their center, mm-hmm. women's centers, reaching out to them, schools. And so they're ordering bigger bulks, and so it adds up really faster. That's amazing. And, y'all, I'm flipping through. I just flipped through the book, and it's like, I want to get some colored pencils and, like, start <laughs> on it right now. Like, it's so badass. It centers women in such a, and femmes in such a wonderful way. Um, and we're going to talk about a little bit later about 
why it's so important for you. It seems like that's a, a real focus of your work and, and how you're using your art to empower women. But I do want to pause for a second. So you are African, originally from Nigeria, and you know, on social media, oftentimes, and even my, my friends who are African, they often joke about how African parents aren't really happy or satisfied unless their kids are doing something in the STEM fields. And so for you, again, you, you mentioned you started out as a statistics major and you went to the University of Virginia. How did your parents react when you realized that you wanted to take this different path and pursue an art career? I think because it wasn't such a smooth transaction for them that they were skeptical because their main goal is they want me to be well off mm -hmm. once I'm done. Like I can stand on my own two feet and it just didn't make any sense that I'm taking such a drastic switch. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not sure this is what I want to do or is this just like a fleeting uh, thought or idea. So they were not uh, supportive in the beginning, but it's kind of like you have to prove yourself and just, mm -hmm. if this is your passion, you're going to go hard or go home. So they're eventually going to see the fruits of your labor. And is it because, like, you know, we're, we're talking about these successes that you have had. Are they starting to, are they in a better place now mm -hmm. about it? A way better place. Okay. I think, especially when I had an interview, um, it was like a TV news interview. Like, we started to see that, mm -hmm. yeah, things are happening. Mm -hmm. I make, like, I have shows and, mm -hmm. yeah, people are being receptive of my work. That's awesome because I think it can be, for, for many folks, but I think especially in, in cultures like ours where the, that familial unit is so important and, and where there is that pressure to kind of follow the path that, that your parents sort of set for you, I just think it's so, it was bold and courageous for you to, to, to take that stand for yourself because I think a lot of people just do what their parents want them to do because it's the easiest way or maybe their parents are paying for them to go to school and they don't have an option and so um, just impressive that at such a young age you were able to be like, okay, like, I got to create my own path. Because at the end of the day, you've got to walk in your life. And so, yeah, um, yeah, very cool. Uzo attended the University of Virginia, located in the city of Charlottesville, which has been home to a couple high-profile white supremacist rallies in the last couple years. As I'm sure y'all recall, in 2017, a neo-Nazi killed Heather Heyer while she was protesting against a Unite the Right rally. And the very next year, a bunch of wannabe Klansmen marched through UVA's campus with tiki torches because they were pissed about the city's decision to take down the statue of their racist forefather, Robert E. Lee. Okay, I want to now switch and talk, uh, talk about what it was like being Black at UVA. Mm -hmm. um, so... For people who may not know, UVA, the University of Virginia, is located in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, the student, the black student population is like under 7%. Um, and so I'm just really interested in learning about like, what was your experience there as a black woman on a majority white campus? I felt um, the um, black body did their best mm -hmm. to make us feel as home as possible. Um, you know, we had uh, um, OAAA organizations of Africans. There are a lot of organizations there in place that you can join and feel more comfortable at. I'm not the kind of person that really joins groups, mm -hmm. but I did know that um, they were there. Okay. Um, freshman year, they had a lot of um, strolling, very a lot of more like inclusive, diverse parties mm -hmm. going on. So that was like a great way. I felt like they did their best, but 
things you start to realize a lot more as you go down the majors and paths that you want to. Um, if you're gonna go through the route of oh, I want to study African American studies, you're gonna see more people with the same um, mindset as you. But um, as I'm going into art, or when I was going into statistics, you're gonna definitely yeah. notice that. Um, so I think it really hit me when I was in the um, started doing art and realizing that there really was not that many um, black people in the program as me. Mm-hmm. But I think it just kind of makes you go harder to make sure that your story is heard and what you your voice is heard. Mm-hmm. And did you feel, despite the fact that you were one of, you know, one of few in, in your program, did you feel supported? Did you feel like it was harder for you in any ways? Mm. Supported, I would say the only thing I really, I would, the program doesn't really support you as much. And the African uh, American body didn't really catch heat until like my last year mm. of like mm-hmm. my pursuits and what I was trying to do. But social media is, was definitely yeah. helpful in um, kind of keeping you going, the good feedback that you're getting. Um, and I think the biggest part was making sure that I'm not just creating work for class, but creating work outside of class. So. Your work addresses issues related to race, gender, privacy, social media, and love, and and also really focuses on what it's like to be a woman interacting with those issues, essentially, and so, and particularly a woman of color. And so what's it been like to so unapologetically center your creation around blackness and womanhood in a world that prioritizes patriarchy and whiteness? I think when I started... It really started coming out when I started noticing, it, notice, noticing art and how a lot of what we studied were more white-centered. Um, we started off with high Renaissance art, mm-hmm. you know, the Michelangelo's, Leonardo's, um, Raphael. And it was a lot more, I noticed, very light flush against very dark backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking, wouldn't it have been nice to um, flip it around and have very bright backgrounds, I guess, very dark skin. And so it took a lot of trying to approach that, you know. I tried using different skin tones. Mm-hmm. Um, my backgrounds, I was still trying to get an idea of how I wanted it to be approached. Um, and so a lot of what I, when I create works, I'm actually more approaching it in more of um, the technicality, not the story in itself. Mm-hmm. But I might have a concept that I want, but I'm more focused on making sure that um, the color scheme, the composition, and everything works together that I create a piece that when you stop, you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of a, a sort of different side of that is how do you merge your um, Nigerian heritage with, I mean, you spent mm-hmm. now a majority of your life in America. How do you sort of play those things together? So a big part of... Um, the fashion aspect back home is Ankara. Ankara was actually introduced by the Dutch. It's a batik kind of print, um, very um, dye resistant, and um, the colors are just so very bright and vibrant um, that I felt I was trying to figure out how to get it involved in it. You know, I first tried it with clothes. I first tried actually just cutting fabrics, and I found that it was I would do it a more universally a practice way by just painting it. 
because that way I have more control of how the pattern looks. I can change certain curves about it, colors and things mm-hmm. like that to work. And then kind of using more westernized figures, western um very um high-end poses, like un- poses that you not see someone with a normal body shape naturally do. Mm-hmm. Kind of like thinking back to magazines like um L Vogue where you mostly see skinny white women, yeah. you know, so now it's kind of taking that and using black women like me and putting them in very um, distinct poses kind of to break the can- um, the piece, like make it a little bit more interesting to look at. And when you look at my pieces, you don't really know the time. You don't really know where it's taking place in. But one thing is kind of looking at the article of clothing and seeing that, okay, this mm-hmm. is definitely something 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. Just like at UVA and in many places in America, there's little representation of people of color in the art world. The first large-scale investigation of artistic diversity was published earlier this year and looks at representation in major U.S. museums. Unsurprisingly, the study found that there really isn't any. of artists featured are white, and 87% are men. This kind of exclusion is calculated and intentional, but also so historically grounded that Black creatives have long stopped trying to fit into the narrow ideal of what, quote, real art is. Uzo is doing the same. To meet somebody who is doing what you're doing to sort of break that status quo, I think is, it's inspiring. And it's important work. And it's going to take a while, right, to get Mm -hmm. there. But eventually we will get there. Like at this um, show I just came from in New York, it was a collective show. So we had jurors from like the Metropolitan, MoMA, Mm -hmm. pick our works up. And I came in there and there were a good amount of black people there. And it was nice to see other black artists and Mm -hmm. see like their approach and works. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, the shift is coming, right? As you now are in the real world and and doing this, creating full-time, what sort of challenges have you faced in terms of trying to navigate um, this mostly white, mostly male space? You'll notice that a lot of people are not realizing that there is money in art, Mm -hmm. and they will try to take advantage of artists um, on a more social aspect goal. Um scope of things you have all these pages like fine art america mm-hmm. and all these big you just they say that oh you're just putting your art out there but all they're doing is literally making money off your pieces and commercializing it to mm-hmm. something that it doesn't mean anything anymore okay. it's more it's not art anymore you it's just decorations mm-hmm. you know so that's that and there's also um people that pose as galleries um, they might just have a house or something, and essentially, if you don't look at agreements and look out for your best interest, make sure you look read every agreement. They need to be um, held responsible for your art pieces when they're holding it. Mm-hmm. Um, help with carbon transportation. You know, look at how much they make off commission because we've had people they like come and say, "Oh." We get fifty percent of your work. No one should get fifty percent. Fifty. Yeah, that's heinous no, and exploitative in the worst yeah, way. You know, a lot of that's what happens. And another thing is, being a woman as a, as an artist, art is a male dominated field. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, we will, you will be in um, instances where 
they will try to get you to do something that you're not comfortable doing just mm. to kind of make it to the next level. Wow. And you just have to kind, you just have to be strong and know that even if this doesn't go through, there will be other um, chance, chances. That's wild. It's wild to hear. I know that that is a reality. Mm-hmm. Like, we're in, you know, the Me Too movement is a movement for a reason, right? This happens to so many women in, in all over the place and in every different field. How do you sort of navigate your way through that? Because it's, you know, when somebody, power, I'm really fascinated by the concept of power, right? Like, mm-hmm. that person holds something that you want and is able to coerce you. So, how do you, even in the moment, like, separate yourself to be able because it's also uncomfortable i think as women were even even if we had come from families and societies that socialize us to take up space and be willing to speak for ourselves in that moment again when the power dynamics are off it can be easy to fall back into that and so i always say get a middleman involved mm. middleman is our dealer and mm-hmm. representative so they're your liaison between and then also make you look more professional mm-hmm. in the sense that know that you're not e- uh, easily reached like that mm-hmm. and so that way when you're looking at agreements and stuff you have a second pair of eyes you know looking at it as your best interest um i hate to say it but sometimes i would suggest if you're a woman that it's good to have a male liaison you know mm-hmm. i hate to say it but they were are t- they are taking a little bit more seriously in that sense I get it. It's a damn shame. Uh, doesn't that stuff just piss you off? Mm-hmm. Like, like why? Uh, uh, patriarchy. Down with the patriarchy, everybody. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it does suck to say, but it's also, I mean, you have to work within the reality that exists. And, and so. I know some people listen to this might say, oh no, there are a lot of women help groups, but you have to remember that art is not just in America, mm-hmm. but America is doing their job and the whole patriot, like, you know, trying to fight that, but everywhere else especially nigeria it's a very male-dominated woman um you saw that new documentary that came out with um girls that had to sleep for grades wow know? what's so, that called do you remember i don't know it's off of my head is it on netflix yes okay I'm, i haven't heard of that i'm gonna have to check that mm-hmm. out okay having to sleep with their teachers mm-hmm. to wow and this is like younger girls young girls <sighs> just to get up and into the workplace you yeah. just it's not just, you have to think about outside of America to understand that when I'm talking, I'm talking also for like, because a lot of girls that have reached out to me on social media from Brazil who want to uh, do art, mm-hmm. I'm trying to give them as much advice as I can. Yeah. Well, that's important. And that's like beautiful that you can be a sort of light or like, you know, it's possible, right? And it, it's good that you're able and willing to, to sort of reach back and, and help them navigate those um spaces what do you think it'll take to break the white male status quo in the art world and sort of secondarily should that even be the goal i think there's an argument to be made around whether or not we should be trying to infiltrate and fix systems that were never meant for us or if we should be trying to create our own so interested to see your thoughts on that um, everything starts at the primary level, schools, mm-hmm. you know, starting with education, um, more inner city kids might have the chance of having a black art teacher, mm-hmm. but, um, kind of on the whole 
three levels of elementary, middle school, high school. I had white teachers, mm-hmm. you know. But we need more, um, more black educators in the arts, you know. Despite these challenges and the uphill battle for a black woman artist to gain recognition, Uzo sees a different future. What's your ultimate vision for your art career and sort of what are the near future things that you've got going on to to see that vision become a reality? I guess I still want to explore art Mm -hmm. in the painting sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Along the way, when I went to London, you learn new skills. Like I learned how to make uh, rugs, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you learn like a lot of different skills along the way. And but in the kind of grander scope of things, I do want to enter some school programs and kind of just reach out, mm-hmm. you know, make myself available to people that want to discuss the possibility of either learning about art history, going more into learning more black history, or just becoming an artist themselves mm-hmm. and being that pillar that says, Yes, I've made it, I've done it, and I made myself at, like I feel like the big artists out there, they're not accessible. Mm-hmm. You can't reach out to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to make myself accessible, have talks. You know, let's discuss what you feel should be touched upon, mm-hmm. and reaching more out into the countryside, um, putting in more programs, more um, community. Not putting. I'm not doing the community centers, but mm-hmm. making sure that there's more art-based um, conversations because when you get creative juices flowing in a child's mindset that's also helps them think of because you know math is straightforward but Mm -hmm. when you're more creative you're thinking of more ways to approach the answer Mm -hmm. and so the more ways you can think of people to create for people to approach answers the better for society it is if you could share a life lesson with our listeners whether it's something you've learned from a mentor or something that you've come to figure out on your own what would it be kind of don't spend so much time thinking about it Mm. do it mm-hmm. you don't have to do it in a more physical sense but do it as in taking steps to get closer to the goal yeah i think you're it's funny because the uh, in our, our previous couple ep- episodes um folks have said the same thing i think it's really easy to get caught up on um what if i fail or what if this doesn't go the way that i want to go and so i think it's absolutely right to be just like you got to take the steps what's going to happen is going to happen but if you don't even try then you're never going to know exactly if you want to see uzo's work and you 1000 percent should because it's really really amazing check out her instagram at uzo.art that's u-z-o period a-r-t if you like what you see and you want to cop her artwork or her books, you can visit her website at www.uzoart.com. She also is actually accepting commissions, so you can hit her up to get a unique holiday gift for someone. Um, so yeah, thanks for tuning into another episode of Ivy Untold. Keep climbing and we'll catch you on the way up.